Thank you all for joining us on the holiday edition of the Ivy League Hoops Hour, where we cover all things men's basketball in the ancient eight. We are your hub, your go-to, your day one. But not really, though. I'm your co-host, Coach Sidney Johnson, former head coach of the Princeton Tigers from 2007 to 2011 and former three-time captain of the Tigers in 95, 96, and 97. And I am joined by my co-host, Princeton alum and former Princeton graduate assistant coach, Lawrence L. Boogie Schuler. Lawrence, how you making out? I'm feeling great, Coach. Filled with holiday cheer. How about you? I am wrapped up in the holiday spirit, Lawrence, and I'm so excited about this week's show, highlighted by the interview with our near and dear friend for many years, the outstanding basketball coach, the head coach of the Cornell Big Red, Brian Earl. In addition to our conversation with Coach Earl, we're going to cover mid-major basketball and a lot of other things in terms of scheduling in the Ancient Eight, but we cannot do any of this without you all. So please email us your questions, your comments, your stances on different topics that we cover, recommended guests, the whole gamut. Email us at ivyleaguehoopshour at gmail.com, and we will be sure to cover your input in the next show. It's been a labor of love. Let's get right into it on the Ivy League Hoops Hour. And here we are again on the festive edition of the Ivy League Hoops Hour. Normally, we would go into our segment of My Eyes Don't Lie to Me, Lawrence, but because of COVID, we don't have a lot of games to choose from. So we decided for our listeners to go through the stocking stuffers left behind by St. Nick over our fireplace, Lawrence, and see what we have to divvy out in terms of gifts throughout the league. Lawrence, what do we have first? The first one looks like a large cutout D and picket fence. Ooh, I like that one for the Brown Bears defense. I have Brown as the third seed in the upcoming Ivy Madness postseason tournament, not held till March, but Mike Martin's crew, a nine to 10 man rotation, Lawrence, they are limiting opponents to a league best 0.935 points per possession which actually ranks in the top 100 in the country in terms of defensive efficiency. The Bears continue to be the only team in the Ivy League that holds teams under one point per possession on the road. Stout is a word that I would use for the Bears' defense. Yeah, that sounds perfect, Coach. The next one we have is a top hat and a magic wand. Taking people by surprise. How about the Cornell Big Red, Lawrence? The favored teams of recent memory seem to be James Jones's Yale and Tommy Amaker's Harvard, and for very good reason. Nine of the past 10 regular season Ivy League championships have been shared or won outright by either Harvard or Yale. So everyone will be forgiven for not choosing the Cornell Big Red as one of the top teams in the Ivies. Brian Earl's group is 8-2, and two, owning the league's top winning percentage and dominating the conference in offensive numbers, including points per game, scoring margin, assists per game, and assists to turnover ratio. Not quite the best team in the league, Lawrence. That distinction goes to this year's Princeton Tigers, but unquestionably the surprise team of the season. That has to go to the Cornell Big Red. I'm right there with you, Coach. Our next stocking stuffer is an industrial spotlight. A spotlight. You mean shining a light. How about shining a light on the league, Lawrence, with the best win of the season to date? And that would have to go to Princeton over South Carolina. Mitch Henderson and his Tigers earned a 66-62 win over SEC opponent South Carolina. In the first round of the Asheville Championship played on ESPN, the Tigers made shots, they made plays, and they certainly made headlines for the league, as everyone in the league seemed to get off to a hot start this season. Dartmouth made noise with a win at Georgetown, Yale knocked off UMass, but I still think that Tigers win will hold up, at least to date, as the best non-conference win for the Ivy League. 
And looking in our bag here, Lawrence, it looks like our last two stocking stuffers are inspired by two of the greatest Christmas movies of all time. Indeed. Our next one is an official Red Rider carbine action 200 shot range model air rifle with a compass in the stock and this thing that tells time. Those of you in the know recognize that Lawrence is referring to A Christmas Story, an absolute classic, and we're going to gift that rifle to Keller Boothby, who might just be the best shooter in the Ivy League. Now, it takes one to know one, as Cornell head coach Brian Earl, former owner of the all-time three-point record in the Ivy League, recruited Keller Boothby out of Preston Wood Christian Academy in Plano, Texas. The 6'7 sophomore forward is competing in his first season of Division I basketball. We all know because last year there was no athletic play in the Ivy League, but Boothby is looking like a KG veteran. He leads the Big Red in three-point makes, attempts, and three-point percentage. He is also the second leading scorer on the team and is flirting with the NCAA single-season record for three-point percentage owned by Micah Mason of Duquesne, back in the 2013-14 season. And our last stocking stuffer, Lawrence? It's a Blu-ray copy of 1988's Bruce Willis and Alan Rickman classic, Die Hard. Oh, that is a classic, Lawrence. And that, I have to gift that to Penn's challenging strength of schedule and head coach Steve Donahue. He has to be saying to himself, yippee Kaye. My heart goes out to Coach Donahue and the Penn Quakers if they have been saddled with a Hollywood hero's burden in terms of their non-conference schedule. With a playing rotation predominantly comprised of freshmen and sophomores, the Quakers are facing tough opponents night after night after night with the 67th toughest schedule in the country, according to teamrankings.com. And no one in the ancient eight ranks higher than 138. And Lawrence, that'll bring a close to our holiday gift segment as all of our stocking stuffers are passed out. And yes, the final verdict is in. Die Hard is indeed a classic Christmas movie. Coming up next, our interview with the Cornell Big Red head coach, Brian Earl. This week, it's a personal joy of mine to let you in on a conversation with myself Lawrence, and a mutual friend of ours who just happens to be the head coach of the Cornell Big Red. This gentleman and I played together at Princeton during the 96 and 97 seasons. Frankly, folks, two of the best seasons of my life as a basketball player. I graduated, and he continued on to become a legendary player at Princeton, earning 1999 Ivy League Player of the Year and leading the Tigers to three NCAA berths and one NIT appearance during his stellar four-year career. After a pro basketball stint and time in the corporate world, he worked alongside yours truly as an assistant coach at Princeton beginning in 2007 and remained at Princeton as an assistant coach alongside our mutual Princeton teammate, Mitch Henderson, in 2011. Now, as the head coach of the Cornell Big Red, he is the only Ivy League coach not at Harvard, Yale, Princeton, or Penn to lead his team into the Ivy Madness postseason tournament, doing so in 2018. The architect of one of the nation's fastest and most efficient offenses in this current season of 21-22. He is recognized as one of the best tacticians in the game. I, I just call him a friend. Here's our conversation with the Cornell Big Reds, Brian Earl. And to start with that, Brian, uh, I, I actually want Lawrence to share with you uh, what our day was yesterday. Well, Brian, Coach Earl, between the two of us, between me and Sid, we've known you for decades now. Right. And yet this was the hardest, longest interview prep that we've <laughs> ever done. So we're on the phone and we're debating archetypes and artifice and formality and structure. And Sid is saying, I just want to make sure we ask these three questions. <laughs> and in the end, we came to Brian Earl blasting you too in the office. Um, so c can I ask, do you still have elevation on an endless loop? <laughs> no, no. I, 
you uh you must have caught that you know i'm like a pandora amazon musica so whatever they hit me with is uh what i'm listening to so but it is a lot of you know 90s 80s youtube springsteen stones type stuff so I can't believe you're you're boxing me into the one U2 song that was <laughs> popular 15 years ago or whatever, but that's all right. <laughs> Man, this is how this is how bad you know, like this is how things are created on, in in this internet world, Lawrence. Just now you're making uh, U2 my favorite band, and that's all I do. But I'm I'm much more cultured than that. Fair enough. Fair enough. He's Brian. There's no exaggeration with Lawrence. It was literally an hour and 40 minutes of trying to get our act together um, to have you on. I'm not exaggerating. Um, and then we also came to this and you have to you legitimately have to settle this debate. Like so part of it, too, was going back and forth on what a mid-major team is and you you have to break the tie. So take the Ivy League out of it so you don't hurt any feelings or name any names or something but seriously define what a mid-major team is if there is one or a mid-major program what what does that look like to you uh, you know that i'm not i i don't i don't know i'm the, the worst person to ask i know what a high major is mid-major I, I don't know it's so hard to sort of make that um put it in a box like that because there's some teams at the top of their conferences that are probably a low major conference that are definitely mid-major uh, team. And so um, what is a mid-major? It, it would have to be individually determined, but a team that can compete with anyone in the country. I'm not into saying, oh, this team is in a mid-major conference and, you know, it loses to low majors or whatever it is. I, I sort of look at it on an individual basis. So did I just cop out of the question? No, I actually think it's the best answer I've ever heard. And I'm not, I'm being very serious. Now, Lawrence, do you want to share where you come out on it? How much time you got? <laughs> Fire not a lot. Yes. Yes. Not a lot, but be concise. Not an hour 40. <laughs> there you go. It seems to me, as far as I can tell, a bit major is a team that wins its games, but you still don't respect them. Or it's a team that you're obliged to respect, even though they don't win any games. Huh? All right. Very philosophical. Yeah, yeah. He he goes there, Brian. Let me give yeah. you mine. Nobody cares. <laughs> oh man, I didn't know I could do that. Yes, yes. You're allowed. All right. You're you're a friend of the show. Nobody yeah. cares. The relevancy yeah. of a mid major, like people inside the sport, coaches like you and I and others, ads who actually have a clue, know that there's exactly what you said. There are high major teams. And then there's everybody else. Right. There's multi-million dollar budgets, 10 to 20,000 seat arenas, a financial and institutional commitment to being good every year. There's games on linear platforms like ESPN, Fox Sports, da-da-da-da-da. And, you know, with all due respect, um, you, when you webcast your games online with Joe Homer doing the play-by-play, -play, I'm not qualifying that as high major. So sure. it's like it's Colorado State, Mountain West, undefeated, top 15. They're mid-major, like nine and three Norfolk. UMass Lowell and UMass, like respectfully, Brian. Right. They're mid-majors. And no one cares because of just what you said. No one wants to throw their hat into the ring of being a low major, except the HBCUs who um, they have to play eight to 10 guarantee games to fund their departments. So they're like, all right, fine, if you want to call us low major. But Prairie View A&M, to your point, Brian, they can go and play just about anybody and compete. Right. Um, they just can't afford to travel. Yeah. You know? yeah. I mean, it's, it, 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 it's so hard to, to, like I said, box teams into low major, mid major, and everybody does it. But there's so many things behind the scenes that go on. We played Coppin State this year, mm. and they, they, they haven't had a home game since they played Loyola months ago. And that, you know, that, that's a difficult, difficult situation. And so that's, I know everyone from the outside looks at it as it's college basketball. So, you know, you should be able to do this or that, but you know, there, there's, 
when you get into the nuts and bolts of it, everything is so different at different places. And, and you know that I'm close to Colgate and what they've done, mm-hmm. you know, are they a mid-major? They're, they don't have the greatest record, but they've also had to play an incredibly hard schedule because of the success they've had over the last few years. And so um, that's a tough question to answer, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. And they, you're referring to Matt Lango as a childhood friend of yours and, uh, you know, rival at, at Penn when he was playing. And yeah, he's done an outstanding job and, and almost a, a victim of his success. And, and they are clearly mid-major in the sense that they can go on the road and compete and, and, and beat just about anybody over these last few years. Um, right. Let's switch tracks. And it's actually perfect as we're, we're talking about referencing Penn. Do you remember March 2011? Me and you were coaching together at Princeton. We have to go to Penn to win and tie the Ivy League championship to force a, a playoff game. And there's a timeout late in the, or somewhere in the second half. And I turned to you and Tony Newsom, you know, Tony, one of our guys, great assistant coach with us. And I turned to you two and I say, I'm going to lose my shit on these guys. And then I need you to coach them after I do. I'm wondering if you vaguely remember that. And, and if you don't, it's fine. But if you do, I just want to know what you said X's and O's to them, because I just remember going off on them, trying to get them to go harder. But does that, does that, do you recall that at all? I, I don't recall. I, I recall those huddles being obviously just like that intense. And what was great is that you would do stuff like that, like give some of the, the steering wheel to the assistant coaches. And we knew when, <laughs> when, when those moments would happen that, um, you know, you had to balance out your intensity with some tactics or your tactics with some of our intensity. And so it made it a great crew. Um, I don't remember that specifically, but I remember just like sort of us playing together. It was you find the areas where you complement each other. But um, I'll take all the credit for it because we won that game. Yeah, <laughs> <So>. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. So you could edit too. it out and just give me all the credit. That would be perfect. No, we're keeping it all in and giving you and Tony all the credit because we did. There was some reaction. There were some X's and O's, and I'm not taking credit for the X's and O's from that point to the end. Uh, you two get that, and I'll take credit for the emotion, and I'll, I'll piggyback and say this. With that team, Brian, 2011 Ivy League Championship, I remember being perfectly in sync with those guys, with our staff, with you and – and the staff and the players, every emotion that we had as a staff seemed to be like confirmed in practices or games. Every reaction that the players had is, was something that we wanted, you know, um, the leadership, Mavradis, Saunders, Maddox. Tell me if you, do you have that similar feeling? And then present day, you're the head coach at Cornell. Have you been able to experience that feeling of just kind of being perfectly in sync? with with one of your teams I remember that team and it was such a battle and when you do have those close battles we had them as players and then together as a coaching staff that yeah you you know you at a certain point you realize we're all going in the same direction and and there's little things that you may not agree with as a player or a coach but it's that that culture that frame of mind that you're all on the same page where hey, this is where we're going. Let's do it together as 20-something people. And so I, I do remember that team. And I actually remember um, having a conversation with you about we were awesome defensive team. And most of that was because of, of you. And our offense was a little bit, you know, it wasn't as pretty as people yeah, <laughs> yeah. remember the Princeton offense. And yep. I, I remember talking to you and, and uh, you said we had these two very athletic forwards, Ian Hummer and Kareem Maddox. And you're like, listen, we're just going to cut one of those guys and throw it into him in the post. And then the other guy's going to run to the other block. And that's the offense. And I was <laughs> like, you know, my, the alarm bells of the Princeton uh, family went off in my head because it was, it was different. But, you know, I think when you did that, I don't know when it was, but we just committed to it and it wasn't pretty, but we won most games on defense. And so that I remember a lot is that, you know, the way I played and the way you played and we all played was different than how that team won, especially offensively. But we all just threw everything we had behind it into 
the ultimate goal, which is to try to get to the tournament, which we actually did. And so um, here at Cornell, we, we, we've had moments where we're all rowing in the same direction. Haven't been to, to be able to go to the NCAA tournament or anything like that, but you see glimpses of it. And that's most of the struggle with teams is just getting everybody to be bought in. And people talk about it all the time, but it's, it rarely happens as well as it do, does or did with that team. Right, right. How about this, Brian? I, I want to give you talk about spreading the credit around. I want to give Lawrence a credit on this one. Um, he and I were, um, again, in our preparation for having you on, we were going back and forth and talking about Lawrence made the point about there's as many or more differences in the, and in, in for lack of a better term, I'm just going to use like the P. Carrillo disciples, you know, coaches who coaching now who've played for coach. Okay. There's as much variety and differences in how we are all running the offense than there are between us as a group and anybody else running the offense who never played for coach. So you mentioned like my tweaks and I, I call it, remember I tagged that like three around two. Right. And just anytime we hit one of those two fools, the other is going to the other block and let's move and play and, and hoop. And so now I'm talking about Brian Earl running the Princeton offense and you guys rank in the top 20 in terms of number of possessions per game, 76 roughly and air force coached by our very own Joe Scott. And they rank 352nd in possessions per game. I mean, they're playing slow. Like there's no other way to put it. Right. And that's, that's coach. That's cool. But you know, how did you get here now that you, and you, you know, we, we shared the, the backcourt together with Mitch. We played in one of the slowest uh, ways of playing under Coach Carrillo. Coach Carmody loosened it up a little bit, but there's so many variances. Credit my buddy El Boogie for this, but how did you get here? How did you get from playing in the slow offense, playing under a, a more methodical approach with Coach Carrillo and Carmody and influenced by Joe Scott? And now, Brian, you're playing fast and I want to credit you, my, my friend, for how efficiently as well. How did you get here? Yeah, I mean, I think you're influenced by everybody. But I do, I did miss sort of the recruiting periods. These, they have these AAU periods where you go out for three or four or five days at a time and you're watching AAU games from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. But you're also sitting with colleagues and just talking through different things and so a lot of it is is bouncing ideas off of each other obviously um Kirill and Carmody and Thompson uh, coach Thompson and uh, Joe Scott and coach Levy the, all the guys we played for are mm -hmm. a huge part of what we are but you know like my brother's a coach at BMI they play fast and the last year COVID for us we got canceled and so as a basketball coach you know, my, my year was spent at Cornell and we were actually doing shifts walking around campus. So basically wow. you're on ESPN plus watching whatever games you can watch uh, in your spare time. And then having these sort of weird practices where people can't come within six feet of each other and not too many people in the gym at one time. And so you, it's like a sabbatical year. And so as you're trudging through the snow in Ithaca, uh, looking off into the distance, you're thinking of ways to play. And then I was watching my brother a lot, VMI, and they they played fast. And I think Carrillo, even in his book, during the 1970s, when he had Brian Tim, these really great players, and Petrie, and I don't think anyone was averse to playing fast or slow or whatever it may be. I think the the thing about what we all do is try to get the best shot we can get. Sometimes on the Ivy League Hoops Hour, we'll have guests that Lawrence and I have known for years, like this week's Cornell Big Red head coach, Brian Earl. But on another week, it could be a student athlete we've just come across, a coach, a referee, an administrator, who knows who will be on the show next. And that's where you come in, folks. Please, we encourage you to email us, send us your suggestions on guests, topics to cover where you stand on any debates between me and Lawrence point counterpoint, please email us at Ivy league hoops, our 
at gmail.com. And we assure you, we'll work your suggestions into the show. Now, let's get back to our conversation with the Cornell Big Reds head coach, Brian Earl. Got it. Got it. Brian, your dad played at Rutgers. Your brother played at Penn State. He goes to the Sweet 16. Obviously, you're a legend at Princeton, and you get the team. Uh, the Tigers are ranked top 10 in your junior year, and you guys make a, a outstanding NIT run your senior year. You're a star player in high school. You played overseas. You come from a basketball family, if there ever was one. And yet, B, you didn't go into coaching right away and maybe a little reluctant to go into coaching right away. But you were born to coach. You're a natural. So explain that for us listeners. Uh, you know, and I, I've always wanted to ask you that, like, honestly, because uh, I remember our, our initial conversations as I was like, come on, man, I need you. You're my first call. Like, like we got to do this. And I really wasn't confident about myself. I'm, I'm being I, I think I've shared this with you without having you there with me at Princeton, but it wasn't something you were already doing. Why? I, you know, I, I played Princeton and then had a short professional career after and was just sort of interested in, in other things to try out. And I had a, had a, a, a good time. I worked at Sally May, which is basically a student loan company, but in different parts of the company doing pretty interesting things. And in the meantime, you know, my brother had become a coach you had become a coach at Georgetown. Mitch Henderson, who's one of our best friends, had become a coach at Northwestern and Coach mm -hmm. Thompson and all these guys. And so I stayed in touch because we're such good friends. And, you know, I always want to tell you what you guys were doing wrong constantly. <laughs> but um, <laughs> glad you picked up on that. Um, but yeah, you know, so things were, it's a different life when, when I was at Sally May, much less of the stress that you have as a coach and to be honest with you, I, I remember vividly, I was at a wedding in New Orleans of one of my, my good friends, Matt Westfall from, from high school, and all the stuff was happening where the Princeton job had come open, and we knew that you were potentially going to get it. And it was a beautiful day, the sun was shining, everyone's smiling, and you called me and basically said, we need you back at Princeton. <laughs> and I was sort of like, you know, life's pretty good. I'm, I have an expense <laughs> account. Um, I'm not working too hard and they're paying me well. And you, you know, you just sort of kept going at it. It was 2008. So things were, were falling apart a little bit in finance and it just sort of fell together. Um, I don't know if I knew exactly what I was getting into from the so basically side. you're saying I was, I was your escape route. It, it wasn't that you wanted to, buddy yeah. up with me and try to turn this thing around. No, no, I would. Yeah, I would love, I, I, we should rewind that and be like, yes, yeah, <laughs> this moment. But I, you know, I was always looking at it from afar and the time just hit at the right moment. And like you said, you know, I remember having gone to Princeton and growing up, never thinking you could go to an Ivy league school and not realizing you could actually do it until uh, maybe a year before. And, I still to this day have an appreciation for anyone who's ever associated with Princeton for allowing me to get in there and me graduating. And so there, so you hit that button pretty hard with me that you need to give back a little bit and you're needed and we need to be together there and let's turn this thing around. And so I'm always appreciative to the Princeton community for me having gone there. And so there was a little bit of like, let's turn around and give back a little bit too. Tell us a little bit more how you mean it was such an incredible opportunity for you to go there and, and, and never really seeing that as an option for you. What do you mean? Yeah, you know, I, I was a good basketball player at, at a high school. My grades were good, but I was not, I was not as good as Lawrence um, <laughs> with my grades. And, and a lot of the people at Princeton clearly were just more prepared I went to a large public school, you know, you're in, in class with 30 other kids and I needed a lot of help academically. And so that, that, that's the thing that jumps out at you is, you know, I didn't go to a prep school. I had never been in a class where there's eight other kids and you really have to have an opinion on the 300 pages you were supposed to read the night before. 
Right. And so in a lot of ways, I wasn't prepared for that. And I, I think a lot of people at Princeton, you know, the coaching staff and admissions, they, they, they took a gamble on me. And, and it's, it's one of the, one of the greatest uh, universities in the world, I say now, but it opens a lot of doors and, and I'm grateful for that. There were a lot of people who weren't sure from my high school, if I should have gotten into an Ivy league school and they, they may have been right. And uh, so it, it, it keeps a lot of doors open for me. And again, I'm grateful for everybody who made that uh, a possibility for me. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm grateful myself. I, I couldn't have seen my experience there any differently without you and, and Gabe and Steve and Mitch and Jesse and J.O. and all those guys. And, and I think we brought something to the institution that it might not have had without all of us being there, you know, right. like grades and, whatever, just, just these different lives to, to bring to the university. And, and then you, you mentioned grateful. I'm grateful, you know, having you by my side. I'm thinking of Scott Greenman, Dan Conley, Tony Newsom as we're, we're coaching, but you do plunge into coaching. You are a natural as an assistant. I leaned on you a ton, but there was obviously a point where you knew you were ready to be a head coach. You know, there's, there's always assistant coaches, always, I think good ones always have that realization. I'm wondering when that moment, do you remember that moment when you're at Princeton as an assistant and you're like, I'm, I'm ready and I want to be a head coach. And then how quickly did the Cornell opportunity come after that realization? Yeah, I, I think most assistants feel, you know, a couple years in that you, you think you'd be a, a great head coach and you have ideas that you would do that might be a little different. I don't remember a time. And I remember knowing that I must not be the only person who thinks they'd be a great head coach. And pretty much everybody's probably going to think it. And there's not an incredible success rate. So just be patient with it. And, and what you don't realize, and, and looking back, there's so much that is on your plate as a head coach that you don't realize when you're an assistant coach and that's the biggest thing it's not necessarily basketball wise but you know a lot of the stuff off the court academics issues with kids that you keep private parents etc and so i don't know if you're ever really ready but if you never take the leap you'll never know and so you know with the cornell thing uh, you had moved on and, and i'm working with one of my great friends and mitch henderson at princeton and um, like so many coaches, you have to wait for the perfect opportunity. And I think when the Cornell job came open, Dartmouth also came open. Having been at Princeton for so long as a player and a coach, you knew that maybe this was a, an opportunity that fits your skill set. You might have the things that these places are looking for uh, in the new coach. And so when that happened, you know, you really attack those job openings to make sure that your hat's in the ring. You know, so you make mistakes as soon as you start as a head coach. You have so many decisions that fall on your plate. And so, like I said, you, you have to know that you were the smartest assistant coach in the world and you immediately become the dumbest head coach uh, when you're hired. And that's, <laughs> uh, that's the only way you find that out is by doing it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Finish the sentence. The type of player who is going to thrive in a Brian Earl coach team has these qualities. Selflessness, intensity, and probably basketball IQ. And it's tough getting a player with all, all of those attributes. You're always looking for those things. It's hard to recruit to that um, because a lot of it is what you don't see in sort of our AAU environments. But to play the way we play, especially now, and understand how we're all on the same page, you need some of that IQ to understand you need to pass up some opportunities to get us the best option offensively and defensively toughness. You know, it's not as crazy as it was when we played with coaching, but it's sort of the last, the last place on college campuses maybe where you get the truth told to you most mm. of the time. Mm. And um, so you got to, you got to develop a thick skin and in any program, you need to have that sort of toughness and, you know, th those are some of the qualities that I, I think you're constantly striving to find, but it's, it is, it is hard in, in recruiting to uh, find it just by watching the basketball and, and even in recruiting and talking to, to players, it's hard to 
see the the light that might have you back off if they don't have some of those qualities. Well, right now at this stage in the game, Brian, you know, you guys are uh, at the tops of, you know, the, the win tally in the, in the ancient eight. And so you've clearly found some of that in a whole host of guys. You're playing a lot of guys, you're playing fast, you're playing efficiently. And Brian, I just not trying to be weird because we don't always talk this way as friends, but I'm, I'm proud of you and I'm, I'm happy for you. And I, I'm looking forward for you to keep it rolling as you're looking ahead. And I know COVID is, is kind of threatening uh, a lot of teams, not, not only just folks in the Ivy league, but look, look ahead, Brian, whether it's with your team on campus in the Ivy league, we always kind of round out our interviews with allowing our guests to just kind of take the platform. And is there anything that you'd like to see kind of happen in the, in the near future? If Brian Earl was the, the czar of whatever it needs to be, what would that look like? I, one of the greatest things I remember is being on bus rides with, with Lawrence and you and talking about different things. I will say I'm still stuck on, um, I don't know if this is the question that, that you're asking, but the, the NCAA tournament to me, why we're at 68 teams, um, 64 with some sort of play in, you know, just, we used to talk about, you know, there's all these like, high majors that should or shouldn't be on the bubble and they add four more teams Mm -hmm. and then you just create another bubble behind it. (laughs) So I, I was always interested in why, you know, if you, if you double it to 128 teams in the tournament, Mm -hmm. that's one more game to get down to 64. And most people in March want to watch games anyway. So it doesn't matter if you have a team that somehow won the conference tournament with, a 12 and 17 record play Duke get smoked. And then the next weekend, you know, we're down to 64 anyway. So I would like to sort of see it maybe expanded. And there's always the the discussion about the Ivy league having for years, never having a conference tournament. And so if you won the conference regular season, you got to the tournament, which was for us, it was a battle because you never could rely on that conference tournament. But you also did say there was not a ton of competition when teams knew they had nothing to play for. And so they fixed that with a conference tournament. But that can go the other way sometimes where your best team isn't represented. So I don't know. I would find it fascinating if they had all conference tournament winners in and all conference regular season uh, teams in and just expand the tournament a little bit. Um, so that might be a czar move that I would uh, – potentially put in from from day one you know, i love it i you love yeah, l train bring it of Here's course the first time we've ever agreed my god well well don't don't get too excited because okay. I, I i was thinking there was some justice in the world because you were so close when you finally conceded that expanding the tournament you're just going to inherit the same problem that you have with a 64 team tournament of who's on the bubble but expanding to 128 teams. I'm sorry. Are, are you just, taking credit? Are you taking credit for that idea? Is that what just happened? No, I'm, I'm <laughs> busting. I'm busting your ridiculous bubble tournament idea, which I think clearly has been discredited by history. If you change but, the history, then yes, it discredits the history. But well, continue, continue on. Well, you, you've added you added four more teams, and you solved nothing, which I think you've already conceded at that point. But further to your 128 team tournament point. I think we would be taking a major step backward if we're talking about should we include the last place SEC team or the last place Big East team in the tournament over, let's say, the third place Missouri Valley team. Uh, Frankly, yes, a high major team, even the last place high major team could do very well against most of the competition in America. But, you know, you had your nice 16 and 13 year, and now it's time to go home. Can I I jump in and say... We're going to have to agree to disagree on this. We can continue on if we need to, if we need to solve this issue of Lawrence changing history as well. Uh, I, <laughs> that, that's, that's ridiculous. Okay. I'll, I'll leave you the last 10 seconds. Uh, Brian, you're the best brother. So, so good to talk to you and uh, we're going to have to get you back on. All right. Yeah. It's good talking to you guys. In the corner. That's Brian Earl. He'll have to shoot it this time.
I'm so glad that Brian Earl brought up the bubble tournament. I was going to say, all the years that the three of us have shared going back a while now, and you were just primed and ready for bubble <laughs> tournament to come out of his lips. And then uh, you pounced, Boogie. So I know Brian is preparing for games over this holiday season. I know he has one waiting for him right after the holiday and, and had to run. So we let him go, but now you you go and, and continue on your rant about this bubble tournament. It, the biggest thing for you is not wanting the high majors to already have another crack. I mean, is that is that basically the short short version of it? I think that would be one unfortunate outcome. And I, I want to wait until we have Brian Earl back on to hammer out the argument. But sure, the heart of the matter was. How do you solve the problem of qualified teams not getting in? When you expanded the field to 68 teams, mm -hmm. you solved absolutely nothing. <laughs> We're still having the exact same debate about who, who is the last team in. And right. so expanding to 128 teams, we're just going to go on and on about who's ranked number 128 and who's ranked one, number 129. Right, right. Well, let, let's pull back the veil a little bit. I, I would say if you're a, a high major team in the Big East, who's, by the way, having a really, really good year, as Villanova is always uh, a perennial power and, and actually is, is not currently in the uh, top 25, but Providence is and UConn and um, Creighton, I, I believe, is playing good basketball. Um, DePaul has had some, some signature wins already uh, under a new coaching staff. But I digress. Um, you're thinking, Lawrence, and you may be thinking incorrectly, but you're thinking on any given day, I can beat Vermont. Now, Becker has done an outstanding job. Everybody who knows college basketball knows that. But they're, they're, that's what they're thinking. This high major coach in the Big East, or I don't want to pick on anyone, SEC, whoever, mid-table, they're thinking, I can beat Vermont every day of the week. I belong, and they don't unless they win their their conference tournament. So I actually think it's like high majors who are thinking they're, they're worthy more so than, than some of these mid majors. Uh, I'm not saying you have to agree with that. Um, and I'm not saying I agree with that, but I, I feel like that's kind of the jockeying that's going on behind the scenes. Well, I think if you're looking for that type of validation, you can talk to your wife, you can talk to your fans, maybe even see a therapist. But the tournament is for the team that win the games on the schedule. All you have to do is win the games on the schedule, and then you can keep playing. Right. But what if my games, let's get into that. What if my games are tougher? My games are tougher week in and week out. And my games are harder to win than your games. You're running the table in a whatever league. I'm battling, you know, ACC, SEC, Big Ten, Big East. Uh, you know, I've got my hands full week in and week out. You don't have anywhere near the challenge that I have to win games. We're out here playing with the AI and no scholarships. So don't preach to me about having a tougher road to get there. Seems like I touched a nerve. Um, <laughs> <laughs> don't preach to me. <laughs> you, you, you went right back to your Ivy League uh, upbringing and rooting. But, you know, I mean... Again, we're we're naming names not to offend, but you know this is not. It's also beyond the Ivy League. It's you know it's America East. It's uh, Patriot League. It's uh, you know Horizon League. And I think winning winning is challenging for everybody. I would say that challenge to get out of a one bid league is as fierce as it gets. Where the high major conference, you don't have as much pressure to win the league. You have more opportunities to get quality wins. So now I'm I'm over on your side and, and taking off the devil's advocate hat is because you're in those high major conferences, your opportunities to pick up points and signature wins or however you want to phrase it are infinitely more than good mid-major teams. Uh, they, they don't have as many opportunities to pick up signature wins during conference play. So it sounds like the verdict is Gonzaga no longer mid-major. Now they're a high major. Absolutely. Absolutely. Are they, are they cemented there? Is there any going back? That's an awesome question. Wow. When you emerge to be a high major, is there any going back? No, I don't think so. I think 
you know, no, no. And again, I, I'm only naming names so that, you know, we can all kind of have a similar conversation and I'm not being too obscure, but like, how about this one? And I think it's related to what we're just talking about. Blue blood programs in college basketball. I've got five for you. Duke, North Carolina, UCLA, Kentucky, Kansas. And I want to say like five plus, I should basically say six, Indiana. And now I'm tying that to what we just talked about. I think once you've established yourself as a blue blood, i.e. Indiana, UCLA, Kentucky, Kansas, Duke, North Carolina, there's no going back. In my mind, you're always that. And so I'm now I'm tying it to what you just asked me. Gonzaga, now that you've emerged to being a high major, there's no going back. I think you're spot on there. But I think there's also a phenomenon there that's relevant for the mid-majors is bracket creep. So once these mid-major teams become high-major teams and they're replaced in their conferences by new teams that acquire the mid-major label, then now we have a pool of teams that are tagged mid-major, but they're completely different in terms of the size of the student body, the enrollment, the academic profile of the school. Well, you actually just did make me think of something, though, if I can interject, is you just said it. Mid-major programs acquire that label, but they assume it. They proclaim themselves. The king is dead, long live the king. They declare it, <laughs> okay? But high major, you can't declare that. It's placed on you by outside forces, i.e. conference affiliation, TV, not only uh, TV revenue, but TV contracts. So, hey, you're in a conference and you're in a school where we're going to put you on our linear platforms, not webcast and all that. We're going to put you on, you know, CBS Saturday, you know, game of the week. That's you. Whereas mid-major, that comes from you declaring it for yourself. Well, 20 years ago, being a mid-major meant something. Gonzaga was the darling of America because they were this small school, great academic school that played very well and competed against teams that had more institutional advantages in terms of building a program. But now with the conference realignments, it's like you said, high majors and everybody else. So I went back to the NCAA tournaments starting with the 2010-2011 tournament. And I looked at the number of multi-bid years of conferences that are typically called mid-major conferences. And ESPN actually gave a list of them. The A-10, Conference USA, the Ivy, the Mid-American Conference, Missouri Valley, Mountain West, SOCON, the Southern Conference, the Sunbelt, and the West Coast Conference. They apparently left off the Horizon League. Yeah, that's interesting. Right, they left off the WAC. They left off the Colonial. Yeah, wow. They left off the Metro Atlantic. Since the 2010-2011 tournament, the A-10 has had 10 years with at least two bits. Conference USA, two years. And just as an aside, that conference was basically gutted by the AAC. Ohio Valley, only one year in the last basically 10. Horizon League, zero. Mid-American Conference, zero. Mm -hmm. Western Athletic Conference, zero. The Colonial has had one year in which they sent more than one team to the NCAA tournament. Right. Metro Atlantic had only one year since 2010-2011. So are we going full circle here and saying you're not a mid-major conference if you don't have multiple bids? Ought that be the dividing line? Well, it could be. Initially, I was thinking that mid-major conferences, true mid-major conferences were getting screwed by the, by the uh, realignments. But mm -hmm. uh, if the line is moving because the mid-major teams are moving into high-major conferences, well, there you have it. I think it's on both ends. And this is where you really have to know the sport and you have to know what's going on. Because I actually believe what I just said, but I would also say if the criteria is based on bids, then we also have to look at the criteria used to earn a bid, which continues to change every couple of years. And you and I know right now that that criteria doesn't favor the small guy. 
you get no argument from me. I think the deck has always been stacked against the little guy. <laughs> right? But are those teams that move from traditional mid-major conferences into high-major conferences, are they high-major now? Butler, Creighton, no longer mid-major? Are they high-major? I think so, Lawrence. Once you're there, you're there. Butler and Xavier, welcome to the party. You've arrived. Butler puts a pair of Final Fours together. It's, it's hard to argue that they're not among the best basketball programs in the country. And uh, as my dad will remind me, that didn't start, you know, in our era. Butler's been good for years. So Creighton, Xavier, Butler, welcome to the show. We now come to the segment of our podcast where we answer listener emails. This week's email comes from Brett Tomlinson, who writes, I'm curious to hear how you think the changes to the schedule, a few more weeks in the league season and fewer back-to-backs, will affect how teams approach the Ivy Games this year. If you were coaching, would it change how you prepare? Do you anticipate shorter rotations in the weekends where teams have only one game? And is there any type of team that benefits from this type of schedule, or is it better for everyone across the board? Brett Tomlinson, terrific to hear from you. And man, uh, just thank you for your friendship over the years and your coverage of Princeton basketball and Princeton University. Indebted to you. And you started out with a wonderful slew of questions. Glad that you're a listener. And uh, we'll try to uh, take a stab at all of them. So let's dive right into it. Uh, First and foremost, as a coach, Without any doubt, it would change my preparation. If I only have a Saturday game that week, I'm looking at pretty much four and a half days, roughly, of of uh, being able to prepare. You know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I'll go a little bit lighter on Friday, and uh, I'll roll right into the game. Uh, you can also obviously work in an off day anywhere in there, and I know that Ancient 8 coaches, uh, they are really attracted to that, the ability to have an extra off day and maybe nurse some injuries. I also think in my second calling, if you will, as a coach that so much more focused on player development throughout the entirety of the season. And I think one game per week uh, facilitates that happening a bit more where you can string out your game preparation throughout the week. And so um, you can give more repetition and more focus on those second and third unit guys as the uh, season plays out. Uh, You're spot on in terms of your rotation that you can shorten that if you have only one game to prepare for on Saturday, you can rest your kind of main seven, eight guys or so who are in your playing rotation and you can just kind of go with them on that Saturday. You don't have to necessarily risk if you think it's a risk uh, a few minutes for somebody who might not be quite as prepared in the way that you do on a Friday, Saturday, because without sneaking in some some rest during games on Friday, Saturday, you run the risk of of kind of running your guys into the ground. Those are some things that you're thinking about as a coach. I'll say this as a student athlete, I do remember distinctly, uh, yeah, you know, we were pretty good, but we also had a unique style of play and that was an advantage of ours. So on Friday, Saturdays, which is the traditional format, Teams would only have two days to prepare for us, say Monday, Tuesday, and then two days to prepare for Penn, who is also really, really good, say on Wednesday, Thursday, and then boom, Friday, Saturday, those games were coming quick and fast. So I think we, Princeton basketball or any kind of uh, unique and very good style of play, but unique, they lose a bit of that advantage competitive advantage because that Friday, Saturday crunch disappears week in and week out. And some teams benefit from uh, preparing for your distinct style of play with only one game per week. Let's bring Kale Catchings into the conversation. Senior captain at Harvard, who had a lot of great things to share with us earlier in the season on our pod. And one of them was just a simple fact that the Friday, Saturday, weekend and week out That gave him a rhythm as a student um, where he kind of knew where he could commit to himself academically Monday through Thursday, knowing his practice schedule Friday, Saturday, obviously he's plunging himself fully into the games and then Sunday, knowing that's an off day week in and week out, he can commit a full day 
to academics. And that's something that I remember being able to do. And it, it worked really well for me. Now with this new scheduling, one week's a Friday, Saturday, another week's, you know, just a Saturday game. Granted, you're probably able to kind of get some academic stuff done throughout the week. Another week is the MLK Junior game, which I think is an awesome idea for the Ivy League. I'm so proud of the league for playing on Martin Luther King Jr. Day. But to my point and what Kale Catchings might say, it's just unnecessarily disruptive, you know, as a student. I guess as a student athlete and a coach, you're just going to have to deal with it. One other point, and I got to credit Lawrence, my co-host, as we were batting this around back and forth, I want to credit him for this. You know, COVID continues to wreak havoc on the nation and certainly on college athletics with cancellations left and right. This might be the year to put this new scheduling on hold and let's maybe get through the winter, you know, push the season back, increase our testing if we're not doing it already, make sure that our athletes and coaches are safe and sound and maybe push the start of the season back a little bit, hold to the Friday, Saturdays, so that we can get 14 league games in, play the Ivy League tournament, and send our best team off to the NCAA tournament. I'm a little bit worried that if we adopt this new scheduling, it's not a guarantee, but because it's spread out, maybe COVID disrupts things a great deal. Maybe there's a sloppy finish to this season, an imperfect uh, finish, cancellations and games that aren't able to be played. And we go limping into the Ivy madness and maybe not sending our best team or an imperfect way to find who the best team is. Maybe this might not be the year to adopt that new scheduling, but you know, we'll just kind of have to wait and see. At the end of it all, I'll say this. I'm a traditionalist, but for a reason. I would love to see Friday, Saturdays, week in, week out, and no Ivy Madness tournament. I know it's been a great showcase for the league. ESPN, publicity, the whole deal, and more teams are in the mix down the stretch. But I also know this. Friday, Saturdays, and no postseason tournament, the Ivy League has always been able to send in that format its best team to the NCAA tournament, get there and win a game or two. Cornell has shown that, Princeton, Penn, Harvard, Yale. So for me, that formula has worked pretty well. But that's a side note. Either way, we really appreciate hearing from you, Brett, and I'm encouraging all of our listeners, please send in your questions, your comments, suggestions for the show. We love to work it into the show. So Ivy League Hoops Hour at gmail.com is how you can find us. And last thing I want to mention, Brett Tomlinson, you've been an outstanding steward of the game and Ivy League athletics, Ivy League basketball in general. You may be an email or phone call away from being invited on as a special guest on the Ivy League Hoops Hour. We'll have to wait and see. For now, that rounds out this segment. And now it's the time in our show where we hand out our non-Ivy League nod of the week. And Lawrence, I think we're going to share with this one and go with the Monmouth Hawks, coached by King Rice terrific friend of mine and a class act through and through and oh by the way the guy can coach the Monmouth Hawks are 10 and 2 Lawrence and they are my underdog pick to win the MAC I think that coach Patino for obvious reasons is getting a lot of acclaim at Iona but quietly Monmouth is putting together a championship like season they've already won at Cincinnati they've won at Pitt They've beaten Princeton, who I believe is going to win the Ivy League this year. And they've also beaten Yale, who many people thought going into the season were going to win the league. Uh, they also have one of the best defenses in the country. They rank 90th in NCAA Division I basketball in terms of defensive efficiency. So well done, King, with the Monmouth Hawks and best of luck in the MAC. Now let's spread some love throughout the ancient eight. And Lawrence, you've got our nod this week. This week, we want to acknowledge Sierra Jenkins of Brown Women's Volleyball, who was honored as an honorable mention All-America. Sierra's a sophomore from Orlando, Florida, who helped her team to a 20-6 and record and an Ivy League title. 
Well done, Miss Jenkins, player of the year in the Ivy League and Brown women's volleyball. And now, Lawrence, let's look at the upcoming games in the Ancient Eight. We've got our fingers crossed that folks stay safe and continue to stay healthy and avoid COVID. Had some cancellations last week. Hopefully, games get back on schedule. What do we have coming up for next week? Lord willing, on Tuesday, December 28th, James Madison comes to Philadelphia to play Penn, and Yale travels to California to play St. Mary's. On Wednesday, December 29th, Harvard visits Kansas, and on Thursday, December 30th, Brown at Maryland. Harvard at Kansas. What an awesome opportunity for the Crimson to go into Fog Allen Fieldhouse. And yeah, that Yale St. Mary's game, that could be something. Fingers crossed for those games to come off. And obviously, we want our Ivy League teams coming out on top. Whether it's those games, guests, topics, or anything that Lawrence and I cover during the show that you have an opinion on, please don't hold back. Let us know how you feel at Ivy League Hoops Hour at gmail.com and let us know where you stand furthermore don't keep this show to yourselves share it with friends family colleagues encourage them to listen subscribe and certainly give us a five-star rating let them all know about the ivy league hoops hour it's a labor of love for myself and lawrence but we want to share it with you all and certainly want to bring in more listeners to the conversation Thank you for listening to us on this holiday edition. We are excited, already looking forward to next week where we've got something cooked up for you special. Join us this time next week, and we'll let you in on it. Take care now. Christmas, Theo, is the time of miracles, so be of good cheer and call me when you hit the last lock.